lot of people say that they're driven by money. I don't believe that they are. They're driven by the outcomes that money is able to generate for them. My original belief was that money, or let's call it financial freedom, equals satisfaction. What I now know is that um, it's not just money equals satisfaction. It's money and a few other things. I started to understand the value of money early because I was never really gifted it. When I was about 11 or 12, I had some access to capital. And so I started to invest that money into the stock market. And the market was, was about 85 to 87, was going through a huge bull run. And so Black Monday happened and the market crashed. I ended up losing most of the gains that I had made but not the capital. So my net position was that I was in the same place as when I started, but I had a huge and very valuable uh, series of lessons that I learned. Are there any other mistakes that you see people making with regards to their investing? The most powerful influence on your investment success or lack of success is Welcome to another episode of Success with Purpose, where we help mentor you into becoming a more successful version of yourself. We do this through giving you access to mentors you typically would never have the opportunity to connect with. We explore their journeys, their experiences, their life-changing events, their fields of expertise, and most importantly, their purpose. My name is Harry Goldberg, husband to an incredible woman, father of two amazing daughters, host interviewer and interrogator of this podcast and director and advisor and meditation teacher of Purpose Advisory. This purpose-driven project is entirely funded by Purpose Advisory, which I am a director of. We guide clients to make great life and money decisions, and we do this through a range of different services. Life vision experiences, personality, investment strategies, cash flow systems, and through teaching meditation. If you want to learn any more about any of these, link in the comments below. Now, just before we learn from yet another exceptional guest, if you find value from these conversations, please make sure to like and subscribe below, leave a review. It really does make a difference. And of course, share it with someone else who's going to find value. Now, listen in, pay attention, take some notes, enjoy. Let's begin. Josh Comrie, welcome. Harry, great to see you again. Thanks for the invitation. Again, that's right. Welcome back. So it's been about a year since our last conversation. For the ones who are listening who want to have a little bit of the update of Josh's life. Basically, uh, grew up without that many resources, managed to work exceptionally hard in career, started his own business, and then started becoming a serial entrepreneur. Financial freedom at 41. I think you're close towards the end of that decade, if I got that one right. You are. Unfortunately or fortunately, that's the reality of age. Keeps on ticking over. <laughs> oh, you don't look it, of course. Thanks. Uh, and today's conversation is going to be different. Today's conversation is focusing on your wealth philosophy, mm. how you've actually created wealth. It will be highly relevant to a, a lot of the clients at Purpose Advisory because we provide financial advice and financial coaching. But I think just I had a lot of people who asked me after the last episode, uh, episode one, um, that's great that it's so successful, but we don't actually know exactly how we did it. So I'm going to get your thoughts or be able to share your thoughts with everyone who's listening. Obviously, it's none of this is financial advice, definitely not personal advice. Right. And what we're going to be focusing on is how you've achieved financial success and how you a little bit about that journey towards the investment decisions you made, some great ones which you made, some blunders which you've made, and how you tend to manage your finances as well. 
without giving too much detail, or you give as much detail as you want. I'm, I welcome it all. Sure. Um, but respecting your privacy, we'd just love to understand more about your philosophy. Right. So tell me, Josh, how do you define financial success? Mm. So I start by thinking about human values. And one of my values is freedom. And I actually think that freedom is the only value that we all share as humanity. I'll say that again, because I think it's really important. I think freedom is the only shared value we have as humanity. And so if you unpack freedom, accepting that I may be right in this context, or certainly for the purposes of this conversation, then it means different things to different people. For example, if you were to grow up under an extreme regime, which was quite restrictive of your ability to express yourself, such as what you wear, uh, how you referred to yourself, um, your gender status, any of those sorts of things, then freedom is simply the ability to be able to wear what you want to wear. If you're privileged and you're born in the Western world and you have had the access to education and you've been given the gifts of maybe some motivation and some intelligence, then freedom is probably the ability to be able to choose what you do with your own time. And so for me to come back to your question, so how do I define financial success? It's the ability to have the freedom to make the decisions as to what you do with your own time. And it's a very simple kind of um, reductive explanation, but I think it would capture that for the essence of the starting purposes of this conversation. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that's a, that's a that's a beautiful point which you're making i i doubt that there'll be that many people that will disagree with it um i suspect because up on LinkedIn if what... you do disagree with it because i'd love to have the dialogue so <laughs> right i i mean i guess that there's the uh i don't think anyone's going to disagree with the idea of having the resources mm -hmm. i money to do what you want to do uh and that might be for some people to just have a lamborghini or a ferrari for some people just be able to live without being hungry and for other people to be able to give away to other people and give to charity mm. and those are the decisions that you're making and then you're using the time that you have i don't think that anyone's going to disagree with it but if they do i'm i'll i'll watch that conversation <laughs> you and them on LinkedIn, that's for sure so in that case we're talking about what you want to do and making your decisions so what does money mean to you then mm. So probably a couple of things. Um, so money is an agreed and a trusted mechanism of store and exchange. That's a, um, a hacked version of what we agree that money is. And so mm -hmm. if that's a principle uh, that has established the cornerstone of what money exists for in our modern society, uh, then I think money is simply, a lot of people say that they're driven by money. I don't believe that they are. They're driven by the outcomes that money is able to generate for them. That may be freedom. It may be the ability to have uh, financial resources at TAP. It may be the ability to demonstrate uh, material wealth to others. It could be the giveaway thing, as you mentioned as well, which I also think is, is very, very important. So money is simply the, the store and the ability to be able to calculate what that number is that you are pursuing or that you're accumulating in the background. Nothing too more complicated than that in my mind. We now have a world in which there's not just kind of one form of money uh, because there's this asset set, this asset class that's been created in the last few years, which um, no doubt pretty much everyone will be aware of now, whether or not they invest in it is a different story. And that's the, uh, the crypto class. And so mm. uh, crypto has become essentially its own form of money, not universally accepted, uh, nor is it a 
necessarily able to be exchanged for something else. In some context, it is, uh, but it's certainly kind of moving into that space of being money. If you look at other asset classes, then you know property or arts or whatever it might be, uh, those are not money. Those are asset classes in and of themselves. But crypto is a really interesting one because it's kind of emerging and it's it's moved into, in, in my view, the world of money as well. Yeah. Okay. And I guess that there there are some monies which you can have, uh, which are more likely to be exchanged uh, or universally accepted. US dollars probably going to be accepted everywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, New Zealand dollar, Australian dollar, maybe not. Mm. Um, so I guess that's a like if someone in the US comes here, comes to Australia or New Zealand, and they want to pay with USD, you, you might accept it. But if you go with Australian dollars over to the US, they they're probably not going to. Sideways. Uh, yeah. And I, I like what you were saying before, right? It's not like people want the outcome from what they can get with money. The outcome as a result of not having it, but the outcome of giving it away. Uh, or trading it for something, yeah. and I've often shared that it's uh, it's not just it's not even the thing that you want, right? It's not that you want money. It's not that you want money so you can buy a car. It's the way you feel when you buy the car. Mm. Or it's the way you feel when you get what you want that you need money to be able to purchase. Yeah, and so that that brings it back to you. What does money mean to you? Mm. Yeah, uh, probably loops back to the start again, uh, which is that money means the ability to be able to pursue the things and um, the both investments and the little bit of materialism that I um, that I have these days, and also giving it away to others. Um, so uh, it's all of those things. So it's the ability to be able to realise my objectives in life, and then the other aspect is to be able to uh, give away the amount that I, I like to be able to donate to the, the charities and the causes that I care about. And so I don't. I think I probably focused an unhealthy amount on money when I was younger. And when I was in pursuit of this thing called financial freedom, which um, is with episode one that we spoke on, uh, that, that was really the, the kind of purpose that I had in the world. And I didn't realize that was the case whilst I was on that journey. I thought it was a goal and an objective of mine. So I was really probably to an unhealthy extent focused on the actual money and the value. And I would um, sweat over the spreadsheet that I had, which was the net worth calculator. And um, I think it was quite unhealthy. Uh, I've kind of separated myself from that these days, and I really just use it as a mechanism of making sure that I'm able to track where the investments are, and if there has been a change, then update them, but not really think too much about the bottom line and what sits at the net worth calculator at the at the bottom end. So, um, you know, cash flow is as if not more important. Um, there's probably an idiom that you've heard in the past, Harry, which is um, uh, turnover for vanity, profit for sanity, cash flow is reality. It is the lack of cash that kills a business. It's not the lack of profit mm -hmm. or top line. It was in revenue that kills the business, the lack of cash flow. And so, uh, you know, these days, especially in a regime of rapidly rising interest rates and rapidly rising inflation, cash flow is really, really important. And so uh, that's probably what I'm more focused on these days than the net worth calculator. Mm. And I'm, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about that mm -hmm. later on when we're talking about the types of investments which you choose to make. Yeah. Uh, we'll put a pin in it. If, in case I forget, you can remind me, uh, but we'll be talking negative gearing and looking at all the different elements of a particular asset which you might be investing in rather than just whether or not it's going to be worth more later on. Um, and so you were saying though that you had, like you were assigning a specific value to money when you were younger, mm -hmm. which was unhealthy mm -hmm. compared to the value which you assigned today. What was the value back then? 
what was the value that you were assigning to it? Yeah, it, it goes back to um, probably the origin story, which for me was a solo parent households uh, growing up in one of the, um, uh, the, the low class kind of suburbs in, in the part of the city that I live in in Auckland. And so um, the value that I attached to money was the ability to be able to make decisions because I had very little ability to make decisions when I was younger. And so what that meant in, even into my teenage years after I'd started to invest my money uh, in one asset class specifically at that age, stock market, we can talk about that later on. Uh, but um, once I'd um, kind of living in, in that world, it was the ability to be able to do things like um, borrow someone's car, like a parent's car or and my own car at 16, and to put some fuel in the tank to be able to get out of that part of the world and go and visit other places. And so the value that I attached to it was that freedom of choice. And so again, there's that word freedom, uh, but then the second word is choice. And it was the ability to kind of make those decisions for myself and for my friends, and then go and pursue those things. So why was it unhealthy back then when you were younger, as opposed to the way that you look at it now? I gave it much more importance than I now realize was probably warranted. Now, I guess I've, I've got to, I've got to pause there for a second, Harry, because um, I'm really aware that I'm in the privileged position of having achieved this thing, which I set out to achieve, which is called financial freedom. And so, uh, and, and for different people, that will mean different things, if that's something that they're interested in pursuing. What I mean by that is for someone who has adopted a, a very austere and a very simple lifestyle, uh, and they've pursued the ways of, um, uh, you know, living uh, very cheaply off-grid, um, small property, whatever those things might look like, then the amount of money that they need to achieve that uh, is probably markedly less than someone who has, for example, I don't, but a couple of kids in private school and a, a home away from uh, out of the city and then a home in the city and then batches and boats and whatever else they might choose to, um, uh, to spend their money on. And so uh, for them, you know, the freedom is all about being able to uh, meet all of those objectives and then have some left over, which is going to be a much, much bigger number than the um, uh, the person who's chosen the life of austerity. So um, it's really about understanding what those respective things are that are important uh, to me uh, firstly. Mm. And I probably placed too much value as a consequence of overvaluing the money thing itself. I placed too much value on the material aspects. And I thought the material things would be those that would make me a little bit happy once I got them. Uh, you probably know about this, Harry, but um, uh, it turns out uh, there's this thing called uh, hedonic adaptation and the hedonic treadmill would state the same thing. Um, and in simple terms, it means that um, you believe that the thing that you are striving to achieve will give you some form of happiness. And the illusion is that that happiness will be enduring from that thing, as in it will continue to go on from that mm -hmm. point forth in time. What we know about psychology and what I know about myself is that uh, there's a there's a boost in happiness and that boost will last for between four and eight weeks depending on the person and they've uh, programmed this back by looking at um, lottery winners for example who the perception is that if you win the lottery you're gonna be happy for years no no you'll go back to your base level of happiness that you were at before making that win before achieving that um, uh, that incredible uh, good fortune you'll go back to that level after about eight weeks you just happen to have a lot more money in the bank account and a different series of problems because the world probably wants to get their hands on some of that money as well, but your net state won't change. And so mm. to wrap back around to your question again, I believed when I didn't have money and I didn't have the things I was able to do with money, that it would generate for me a much greater degree of satisfaction than it ultimately did when I achieved 
the objective that I had. In other words, I thought I was going to be super happy all the time uh, with this financial freedom, with this level of income generated from my assets. But in reality, I sat at the same level that I was at before whilst I was striving to get there. And I realized that there was other things that sat in that delta. Yeah, cool. Okay, so what you're saying, and this is this is important for anyone who's listening, there's uh, what I'm hearing you say, at least, is that there's a, there's a high correlation between how much wealth you have and your satisfaction to a point. And then beyond that, it's going to determine more on what satisfaction, on what type of scenario you need or what type of material assets you need in order to have a high level of satisfaction than it does as to how many assets you actually have. And if we, like, if we talk about, if we talk, like, there are people on the extremes of, like, the FIRE movement, right? Financial dependence, retire early. Mm-hmm. And they argue that if you can live on a low-cost lifestyle, then you can stop working in by the time that you're 35 mm-hmm. or 40, mm-hmm. and you'll never have to work again, if that's financial dependence. Uh, what you have is probably more towards financial freedom, right? It's not like... Uh, I've decided, like I've realized I never have to work again and I've got everything which I need for my current lifestyle. You probably never have to work again and you got more than what you possibly need for the lifestyle that you could possibly desire, right? If you want to go and buy an expensive car, you could go and buy it. Why not? Um, but then you're, you're offsetting that with how much satisfaction is that going to give you? Yeah. And so what I've heard you saying is that you got to a target where you basically could say, I've got enough money that I don't need to work anymore to be able to live my lifestyle. Yeah. But when you got there, you realized, oh, actually I don't have the same target anymore. I, I don't even need that target. Like it's, it's kind of like hiking a mountain going, yeah, I've got to get to the top. I've got to get to the top of the mountain. That's where I've got to get to it. And you get to it and you're like, ah, oh, I kind of could have gone halfway and it would have been just as good. And you know, maybe I would have had all these injuries and the blisters on my feet. Potentially so. Although uh, the injuries and the blisters on uh, your feet are the things that give the richness of life, right? It's those challenges Mm -hmm. and the mountains to climb, which give you the satisfaction ultimately when you get there. And to break it down really simply uh, to explain it in a different way, my original belief was that money, or let's call it financial freedom, equals satisfaction. Mm -hmm. What I now know is that um, it's not just money equals satisfaction. It's money and a few other things, some self-actualization, a bunch of service, uh, the ability to give back to others, realizing purpose in life. Those are probably mm. a short list of the things that would be the key things that would make up a life of satisfaction. Mm, bingo. And I think the people who are listening could relate to the idea of pay creep, for example. Like it doesn't have to be the extreme. I, I had a uh, had a guest recently on the podcast who uh he his name's Chris O'Connell. He was very successful. Had a business that was twenty five, thirty mil uh, pounds turnover. He was doing, and he was in his late twenties. He was doing really well. He was absolutely crushing it in terms of career or business. And then the business didn't go well. He lost it. He lost all his properties. He lost his wife. He lost his children. And he got to the point of trying to commit suicide because he was equating wealth with satisfaction. And then when the wealth was taken out, the satisfaction was taken out as well, uh, because that's what he was assigning it to. He's completely transformed now, which is why he was on an episode. But I think that most people don't need to see those extreme examples. They can just recognize, when was the last time you got a pay rise? Maybe you got a 20% pay rise. Mm-hmm. And maybe you noticed the extra money which was coming to your account for three months or maybe six months. 
And then after that, imagine trying to drop your pay again. And you're like, oh no, I, I can't drop my pay. And most, uh, and that's because we decide, oh, we've got, a, we, we got more money, we can spend more money. We've got more money, we can have a bigger mortgage or a nicer house. So we can finally do those renovations. And then you've got more burden on you, more responsibility, ultimately. Yeah. Um, okay, so that, that was a really cool point. that I labored it for a while because I think the listeners will really, really get a lot of value from it. Um, so maybe, maybe if we switch across to your wealth journey, uh, maybe what have been the, the three most pivotal moments or learnings uh, that really helped you achieve your current wealth position? Hmm. I'll tell a bit of, of, of a backstory to start with because it's probably Please. helpful to get some context there. And so there's the historic things that uh, put me in a good position to be able to pursue the things that I thought would be um, useful to me to enable achievement of objectives. And then there's the things that I've done as an adult. So uh, when I was a kid, uh, as I mentioned, growing up without anything, I realized that the way to be able to, um, to, to get access to you know, pocket money, to income from things was to go out and start earning money. Um, and so I'd do jobs around the neighborhood. I'd be knocking on people's doors, offering to mow lawns, to cut out garbage, to paint fences. And this is as a you know, nine, 10, 11 year old kid. And um, in some of those instances, uh, people would um, uh, trust me, probably because they'd seen me around the neighbourhood and um, and give me an opportunity, and also pay me slight wages, to be honest as well. Um, so you know, very very limited amount of money, which didn't really matter to me as an eleven year old. And so um, with that money, it would originally um, go into the bank account, but I'd actually also lend it uh, to people around the neighbourhood. Um, so I did a bit of the old um, money lending thing uh, to to other kids that were around, and. Um, I forget, I forget the interest rate, but in my head, it's something like 10% a month, which is absolutely userous kind of terms now. Nice. Uh, but hey, did they have another source of um, uh, access to, uh, to, to borrowing? No, they didn't, right? So, and typically people just wanted it for a few days. And so um, it would come back to me with a, with a good, uh, good amount of interest. So um, I started to understand the value of money early because I wasn't, I was never really gifted it. Um, I think it was 50 cents a week, which would be the equivalent of about $2 of, of um, pocket money a week uh, that I was able to get. So the rest of it I earned through doing chores and uh, doing stuff around the neighborhood. And so I um, have a stepdad and he came along when I was about uh, 10. And at that stage in the mid 1980s, the stock market was going through a, a real boom time. And so uh, when I was about 11 or 12, uh, I had a paper run and uh, that generated a reasonable amount of income. And uh, that along with the other things that I was doing, I had some access to capital. I didn't realize that was what it was called. It was just money in my bank account. And so I started to invest that money into the stock market. And the market was, was about 85 to 87, was going through a huge bull run. And so uh, it meant that, you know, almost everyone was making money. And um, uh, then, of course, uh, Black Monday happened, uh, October the something in 1987, and the market crashed. Um, luckily, I'd been in this for a sufficient period of time. And uh, some of the stocks that I was exposed to were actually good quality companies, as opposed to things that were set up with the intention of um, uh, just kind of fly by night and make some money in an appreciating market and then get out of it. And so I ended up losing most of the gains that I had made, but not the capital that sat underneath. So my net position was that I was in the same place as when I started, but I had a huge and very valuable uh, series of lessons that I learned. And they were simple things like, um, you know, pursue things that you're interested in, 
because you're much more likely to delve deeper into those things. So one of the things that I invested in was um, Rainbow Corp. Uh, for those in New Zealand, you'll know Rainbow's End, which is an owner and operator of amusement parks. And that then got purchased by Equity Corp. Uh, and Equity Corp was a um, company that went through doing roll-ups in different industry segments and then doing leverage buyouts of things. And so I started to get access and visibility as to how that worked. I had a range of other stocks that interested me as well, stuff that I could relate to. There was a farming roll-up and I come from rural stock on my mother's back. And so uh, they were things that I kind of got. And so that really generated for me the, uh, the belief that um, it's easier to go into things that you understand and have an interest in. So that was my formation. So I started to get these really early lessons on investing, risk, uh, capital management, um, you know, bull markets, bear markets, you know, those sorts of things as a 12, 13 year old. So were you learning how the businesses were run as well? As much as I could understand as a 12 or 13 year old. So I didn't grow up in a household with entrepreneurs. Uh, I wasn't kind of, you know, sat down and explained these things in any level of detail. So it was more about the level of view and insight that a 12 year old kid who was still at, still at intermediate school, middle school uh, could get, um, uh, get an understanding of. So it really early lessons um, in how to go about doing these things. Then as an adult, uh, there was some formative things that happened for me. So uh, when I was about 25, uh, I came across Tony Robbins and there was a event in Sydney, which was called Wealth Mastery. And I paid the equivalent of about 15 to $20,000 in today money. And as a 25 year old, that was quite a lot of money for me. Um, I had that in cash because I was a, um, a very good unintentional saver. I'll come back to that a little bit later on. And so I had that to spend, uh, but it was a reasonable chunk of money to spend. Uh, but there was a whole lot of lessons uh, around asset allocation, um, assessment of different types of asset class, opened up my mind and my understanding of how you go about valuing stocks, um, valuing real estate, uh, and also a whole lot of um, enthusiasm to get started. That was at a time when the tech world was going through a fairly big and healthy boom. So I started to invest in those stocks. Then September. Was this happened. what early nineties, mid nineties? Uh, mid to late nineties, yeah, late nineties. Yeah, okay. And so, um, tech tech market was going through a decent boom. Then, of course, everything uh, just uh, fell apart. Around about um, there was a tech wreck, and then there was September the eleventh, and both of those had um, pretty calamitous uh, impacts upon upon the stock market. Uh, so, and I had learned that when there's turmoil, that's an opportunity to make money. So I continued to invest, and then broadened out my investment beyond just equities into uh, dealing in derivatives and that sort of thing. So trading on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange with a dial-up internet connection in 1999 and 2000, <laughs> uh, which was quite hilarious. Uh, and I should have lost a lot more money than I did. I actually did pretty well over a couple of years, but I worked out that I'm not a trader um, as an investor. Okay. And again, I'll come back and explain the different ways that I see you can um, go about um, creating some wealth. So that Robbins course was really influential for me. Um, and the, a lot of the lessons have stuck with me over time. Uh, and, and a big part of it was actually giving me the confidence to get out there and become an active investor as or a trader as I was uh, in those days. Um, second and most key thing for me uh, was to have the confidence in myself to exit paid employment as a 30 year old. I had an objective to start my first company by the time I was 30 and funnily up through my 20s, I had a mix of um, finance jobs because I trained and qualified as an accountant 
and then moving into um, executive search and sales. And those were the three things that I focused on in my 20s. Whenever I was in roles that I was an income producer, i.e. I was uh, ultimately responsible for some form of revenue, I always made sure that I was the one that um, took the risk. So I had a very high commission component. So, you know, you could argue that through my 20s, I actually had a, um, a pretty good kind of exposure to being self-employed because I didn't have um, any or much in the way of assured income. But having that confidence to leave paid employment, leave PAY employment, start my first company, really was the thing that set me up to get access to high levels of income and then do smart things with that high levels of, of income. The third thing uh, for me was buying my first commercial property. Uh, so I was about 35, 37, somewhere around that sort of age, yeah, about 35, 37. And so my business had gone well and uh, we were about to move out of our uh, first office as we'd expanded beyond the, the realms of what that could handle. And uh, at that time, which was the um, uh, just after the GFC, uh, there was a reasonable array of pretty good opportunities to buy quite good value property um, in and around the CBD. So um, I had the benefit of having a business that I could embed as the tenant and write a good lease uh, for that tenancy. I kept those two things separate, which I think is important, by the way. A lot of business owners ask me about, I'm looking at buying a commercial property in the business for the business. And uh, I always suggest to them that they set up a trust or a separate limited liability company and keep those two things separate because their business, whatever it is, is not in the business of owning property. Those things should be separate. Um, so uh, those kind of three things together, education, uh, the uh, willingness to take some risks and buy my first commercial property and the willingness to, and the confidence to leave paid employment to get myself into a, a world that I can truly leverage my, uh, my skills. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I mean the one the one thing you get from Tony events, if nothing else, is enthusiasm, right? Right. Um, and so that was, uh, yeah, that was powerful for you. I've had that as well. It's cool. Yeah. So and then you saw opportunity in the turmoil, and you learned that you weren't an investor, and then you had the confidence to leave high commission roles, which is basically like profit share, yeah. essentially, yeah. and to go from profit share to equity. Do you want to talk a little, and then of course there was commercial property. Do you want to talk a little bit more for listeners about uh, that career choice, like the like career to business, the difference between getting paid based on how much value you're bringing to the business that you're working for and how you ended up earning more from uh, becoming the business that is employing people that bring value to it. Do you, want, do you want to explain a bit more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps I'll, um, I'll talk through how I see the different um, opportunities. If, if people are interested in making money, there's kind of you know five different ways, maybe six, um, that people can go about okay. creating some decent levels of income for themselves. Maybe I'll talk about that mm -hmm. first because that's probably a pretty good um, foundation uh, for this conversation. Um, so the first is that um, you're a trader. And uh, that could be across a range of different types of asset classes. So you could be a trader of equities, of crypto, uh, of cars. You could buy and sell classic cars, do them up. Um, property, of course. So buying properties, um, doing some work to those properties and then selling those properties, um, whatever that might be. But your intention when you buy that asset is to sell that asset for more than what you paid for it uh, down the path. So that's kind of the trader um, income and wealth creation. Next is you're an investor. So as an investor, you will likely buy something with the intention of holding it maybe forever, 
but certainly for the long term. And by the long term, I mean five years, probably 10 years plus. Uh, so actually, I'll, I'll tell the story about Warren Buffett. Um, I was just about to say, you sound like you're talking about Warren Buffett. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, most people know who Warren Buffett is, the world's most famous and successful uh, investor. Uh, and um, there's a great book on Warren that I'd suggest, by the way, The Snowball, um, which was, um, uh, there's about 500 books on Warren, I understand. Um, but if I go back about 20 years, there wasn't too many. And that was uh, that was one that I consumed. It was a great book. Uh, but um, Warren, at his 65th birthday, uh, so he's now about 94, 95. So 30 years ago, he was worth just a shade over a billion dollars. Therefore, about 95 to 98% of his wealth came after his 65th birthday. Now, a billion dollars is still a lot of money. And it was a lot of money 30 years ago. But it is nowhere near the levels of wealth that he's managed to create in that last 30 years which it's obviously veering up and down uh, because of the nature of the stock market of recent times. But I think anecdotally, it probably cropped up at about 120, 130 billion, something in that sort of region was where he um, he maxed out. Uh, but the great majority of that happened after his 65th birthday and then a pretty and a, and a really good chunk of it again after his 70, uh, 70th birthday. In other words, his tenure in market was one of the most important things. Obviously, his strategy, his confidence, his ability to impact upon those businesses all had an impact as well. But there's no greater factor than the time that he had in market. And he's been investing, you know, for I think it was about 10 years old, he started to invest in the, um, the US stock market. So is that is that why it was unfortunate that you're about to turn 50 and not 65? <laughs> that must be why. Got it. <laughs> Maybe it's more because of my back and my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Okay, so, so you could be a trader, trader. which is to, to buy it and then quickly sell it later yeah. on, investor, mm -hmm. where you're buying it for long term. Yeah. What's next? Um, a builder um, is what I call the next category. And so a builder is um, probably, to me, only in one of two categories. You'll either be an entrepreneur who starts, runs, grows, and maybe exits businesses, uh, or a developer, a property developer. Those are the two main forms of builders in my mind. Uh, you could be a timer. Uh, so you sell your time for money, and that's wages or salary. So either by the hour or by the month or, or per annum. Uh, there's another couple of options that I don't talk to. So those main four, trader, investor, builder, or timer. Uh, there's, other, there's two other methods, which for most of us are not real options. Uh, you could inherit or you could win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for most of us, those are not options on the table. Yeah. So across that stack, you may move around across that stack and you may do a couple of those things at the same time. And in addition, you may either do it on a bootstrap basis. Bootstrapping is when you don't rely upon leverage. So you do it from your own capital and your own time only. Um, or you take some leverage on, which is you borrow some money from um, a, a wealthy uncle or from the bank or from the mafia or wherever, wherever your source of um, uh, cash may come from. And you from the kid down the road who's on his paper runs. Or paper runs, yeah, exactly. 10% per month. Yeah. Funnily enough, Warren Buffett, when he was about 10 or 11, he had a paper run and then he got five paper runs. And instead of um, uh, working like a madman, he got four of his mates to work on four of those five paper runs and he paid them and took a clip of the, uh, of the margin for um, uh, people working for him doing paper runs. Funny. Yep. So he's actually an entrepreneur that styled himself as an investor because he started some other businesses in his 20s. So where does, just quickly, with, with those ones that you gave, so trader, investor, builder, timer, 
and then obviously inherit and win. But the where does where do you fall if you've built up a company and it's already been built, right? So it's an you were maybe you were an entrepreneur or maybe you've taken over yeah. a business yeah. and then you continue to manage the build, the business mm -hmm. properly. Where do you land there? Yeah. So I think for most people they're in the builder category. Um, so uh, a lot of the people that sit in my network are um, entrepreneurs or business owners and uh, they tend to be especially early on either in their lives or in their business but i've seen this on a relatively enduring basis with quite a lot of people as well their main focus is that of the business and the business achieving its objectives i always separate out the business owner from the business these are two completely separate entities what the business owner desires to achieve so what their intentions and expectations are obviously drive the business but they're two separate things because you might choose that that's not the right path for you to head down um, that that asset has done what you wanted it to do and you can exit that thing and move on so sometimes the builder will move into being an entrepreneur um, and they may also be a trader uh, but um, they're obviously not a timer so yeah okay and when you're working sort of like a profit share mm. Uh, like what you were doing when you were in your career, mm. even though most of the income that you were earning was as a result of the effort that you were putting in rather than just the time, were you still a timer then or was it a bit of a blend yeah. of timer and builder? It was probably a blend, but it was really 80% uh, timer. And the reason I make that difference is that I didn't have the ability to massively influence or control the direction of the entity that I was working for. And so okay. I was a part of the machine as opposed to being the one that was designing and then running the machine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And then what so I'm also model. hearing with each of these is that there's a, uh, there are different paces that you can go with them, right? Yeah. You can be a very fast builder or a slow builder, mm -hmm. uh, which might be a combination of the amount of effort that you put in your skill and maybe leverage as well, access to resources. Is that right? Yeah, 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 very much so. Um, and my model was really largely geared around um, having belief in my own ability to be able to generate returns that would be greater than those that I would see from someone else's efforts. And early on, that was probably misplaced as a belief, uh, but it was certainly there. Um, and so uh, I, when I was a young kid growing up in the environment that I did, um, we weren't exposed to any money. And I had a girlfriend when I was about 19 years old who's family had um, uh, really, you know, decent levels of wealth. And um, of course, my question to the uh, to her was, uh, how did you guys get the money? And she said, well, we inherited it. Uh, and I thought, well, damn, that's not gonna happen for me. Uh, so who from? Uh, granddad was the answer. And what did granddad do? Granddad was an entrepreneur. And so as a 19, 20 year old kid, um, I realized that that was the path that I needed to head down. So I really set myself up through my 20s uh, with a combination of taking some early risk, um, trying some things, being responsible for revenue, and probably the most important thing, uh, and if we go back, you know, coming up to um, uh, 50 years old this year, uh, so through my 20s, uh, the resources for growth, as we now refer to it, the resources for learning, were largely books with the odd seminar and tapes. I remember buying a series of tapes that I'd um, uh, duly put into my uh, car cassette um, player and listen to in the car or at, um, at home. Uh, and so those are the resources, you know, now the world is just absolutely awash with resources. The challenge is not locating the quality. The challenge is uh, getting the signal from the noise.
and understanding where the best quality insight and advice comes from because there is so much information that's out there. Okay. Did you find it easier to make good investment decisions when you had less information than today? I knew less because I'm over a horizon now of, if you go back to the stuff that I was doing in my early teens, you know, we're nudging nearly 40 years, four decades of investing. And so early on, I knew very little, uh, but um, I forget the paradox, um, but um, we, we think we know more than we know uh, is quite often a truism for people. And um, we can rationalize our way through a whole lot of different things in investing. Um, if we, you know, for example, if we look at psychology around investing, then if someone else makes a bad decision on an investment, then that's probably their lack of good judgment and maybe their lack of intelligence in making that bad decision. Whereas if we make a bad investment decision, then that's probably the vagaries of risk that are making an impact upon the performance of that investment. So mm -hmm. we tend to think it was that, bad luck. That's all it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was unfair. Yeah, yeah, unfair, yeah fair, fairness, right, exactly, because, you know, the markets are totally fair all of the time. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so as I've gone through over time, the, um, you know, there, there was an intersection in terms, probably in terms of the amount of information that was available in my skill uh, or my knowledge. Um, skill you know, hasn't necessarily improved in some areas, uh, but um, I've certainly learned a lot more and I've gone deeper into the areas that I understand and have an interest in, such as commercial property. Uh, that's probably the key thing, but also investing in um, early stage businesses, venture investing and startup investing. Okay. So what are some of your uh, less successful or less intelligent, or sorry, let's say the, the unfair decisions that you made, yeah, yeah. unfair outcomes from the decisions you made? Yeah. Um, there's been a range over time. Uh, so mm -hmm. if we jump back to that time when I was doing the um, investing in equities and uh, uh, trading of derivatives, uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange back in the um, mid to late 90s. So I made some pretty good decisions on some stocks, uh, but then the method that I was taught and what I was uh, applying was uh, trade on the basis of value stocks. In other words, uh, stocks that have inherent value that is greater than that of the trading price at the time. And then the margins will work themselves out over time. That's a bit different to the rational investor theory, which is that everyone has access to the same amount of information. And so therefore the market behaves rationally because people are rational. The rational investor theory is one that has gone well and truly out the back door now. Uh, but in those days, that was one of the, um, one of the theories that was around. And so um, I was able to um, look at the uh, look at the market and trade based upon the insight and the knowledge that I uh, that I had in those days, uh, but also factor in that I was working and uh, living in New Zealand, trading in the US in an environment that was quite foreign and unfamiliar uh, to me, where I didn't necessarily have um, the direct insight or understanding of what the culture or what the individual markets were. And so um, some of the bad decisions that I made were investing in things based upon uh, inaccurate information or my inability to be able to interpret the information in a way that was useful. Um, so, because you tend to get a lot of data and you get reports and those are hopeless, it's the insights that you're looking for from those things. And so I made some decisions with, which were um, uh, you know, incorrect uh, subsequently. First thing, second thing uh, was around falling in love with some stocks uh, because value investing means that you go quite deep into the stock, you understand the market, the competitors, uh, the direction, the governance from the board, the management team, all that sort of stuff. 
And if it's a company you're familiar with anyway, then sometimes you can fall in love with that thing. And so falling in love with a stock means you hold on to that stock for too long. And uh, that could well be the wrong thing to do because it might have had its run and then you should have exited at a certain price point. So that was another couple of bad decisions that I made. Once I started to dig into the venture or um, angel investing, as it's now called, uh, then probably, unfortunately, um, the bad decisions that I've made is when I've gone with my heart rather than with my head. What does that mean? My friends' companies. So the bad mistakes that I've made, uh, and I now I have, a, I have a rule, which is to, I have this certain number, I, and I only do this number into friends' businesses, because it's a challenge, right? Because your friends know that I have a reasonable chunk of my time and portfolio is based upon early stage, um, you know, angel startup investing. And so if they start a business, they kind of, you know, want and hope they will be the person that will um, invest in their businesses. And so um, I had an unintended consequence. Um, it was about 10 years ago, uh, one of my good friends was starting a business and um, I just kind of, you know, put in what was the requisite amount of the, the small check that I would write for, for someone. I didn't realize that he would use that, not, not against me, um, it wasn't, wasn't um, uh, that intention at all, but he told others that I had gone in at this level without asking me. And that then gave people the confidence to go, oh, well, Josh knows what he's doing. I should therefore invest in this company. Nobody called me and said, should I invest in this company? Because I would have said, probably not, because that money doesn't mean that much to me. Uh, but if you were to invest the same amount, given your circumstances, it's probably going to mean a lot more to you. And so um, back to the question, uh, I've made four, maybe five investments in friends' companies. And those are the majority of the businesses that have not succeeded, unfortunately. And so rather than digging deep into the analysis and the due diligence, I went, um, okay, I love you. Uh, you're a good person. Um, I know that you're trying to do something meaningful here for yourself and for your family. And so I'll put a bit of money in. And so now what I do is I just cap it at a relatively small number. And I also say to them, um, I essentially, you've got to treat me as being an anonymous investor. So you can't use me as being a person that has um, led or invested in this company. You can't mention me. And oh, what else? But property stuff's gone pretty well. Uh, it's actually gone very, very well for me. Um, so um, crypto, uh, I've... Um, I didn't dabble in any of the weird things. Uh, crypto's gone really well. Um, so, yeah, uh, those are probably the key mistakes that I've made. Okay. Mm. Um, I think I remember our chat a year ago. You said you wish you would, like you came across uh, Bitcoin a hell of a lot earlier than, than when you actually decided to invest in it. Mm. Do you see opportunity cost as bad investment choices as well? Or when you face the opportunity cost? Mm. As in, uh, okay, so maybe maybe this is maybe this is a valuable topic uh, or line of questioning. The obviously we can regret the decisions that we actually made, right? We can we can very easily associate a dollar amount, a tangible amount, to the mistake when we've taken action. Mm. But I I find a lot of people who come to us are really really struggle because they wish that they had bought a property ten years ago, or they wish that they had bought crypto. I don't know, two years, three years ago, and then obviously sold it a year ago. Uh, but like they, um, they place a lot of their mistakes, like all the mistakes which you've given, like the bad money decisions that you gave me, uh, mistakes of actions you've taken. I haven't heard you talk much about regret of the actions that you didn't take. Mm. Yeah. 
it's a really good line of conversation um, because what you start opening up there is the dialogue around mindset and uh, my belief and it was an understanding that I was given actually originally from the Tony Robbins course is that the most powerful influence on your investment success or lack of success is the mindset that you have both when you go into it and then how you handle things over time what do I mean by that um, so well, let's talk about the power of regret uh, to start with so um, I largely don't have any regret I've made some pretty poor decisions in the course of my life uh, both in relation to money and maybe some material things that I've bought and and how I've handled, you know, behaved in certain circumstances. Uh, but I've always endeavoured to take away the learning from those. And sometimes that learning is so bloody painful. You just have to take that learning. Otherwise, you're <laughs> not going to grow as a person and you're, gonna, you're at risk of making the same mistake again, obviously. Um, so, you know, mindset, um, if you have that regret, then regret to me really is about keeping anchored at some stage in the past. And if you've got a foot in the past, it's very, very hard to either live in the present, right, to live mindfully, live in the present and have the richness of the moment, which we're experiencing right now. And it's also very difficult to make positive decisions for yourself in the future because you're likely to second, third, fourth guess every decision that you made because you've got something that's holding you back in the past. So um, there's someone that I have uh, worked with over the last couple of years and um, he was offered a pretty healthy sum of money to buy his company uh, at the end of the year before last, so the end of 2021. And uh, we were talking about it, and I didn't want to advise him on this because it was, you know, we're talking tens of millions of dollars here. So it was a life-changing sum of money uh, to sell this business. And I really believed, you know, my, my uh, belief is that often the first offer that you get for your business is the best one, especially if it's unsolicited, and this was an unsolicited offer. And so um, he turned it down and then the world changed markedly in the space that he operates within and um, lost a few customers. Customer acquisition cost increased quite markedly. The business that had offered to buy his business um, suffered a, a bit of a change of fortune and uh, their trading price, their listed company started to tank, went down by about 40, 45%. And so um, there was a, a moment in time that he could have realized huge um, uh, upside on what his, invest, what his investment, because he's a time and a money investment he'd made to get that business to that point, and he didn't take that. And he was harboring some regret. And so we spent quite a lot of time talking about regret and moving on from that regret and putting it behind him so that he could then make a very clear decision in the future should that opportunity present itself again. So that's the regret-based mindset. Um, the other one is around uh, timing of investments. You know, timing is, you know, everyone I think knows that timing is the most crucial thing. And if you look at any of these um, volatile investment classes, um, crypto, obviously very super, super volatile, but quite a lot of US equities, especially the speculative equities, are also quite volatile. And so if you're a trader, back to that original term, then it's really critical for you to get in and out at the right time because then you maximize the return that you're able to get on that thing. If you go into it the wrong mindset, and by the way, one of the really key wrong mindsets is that of greed, right? Try to maximize your return at the expense of someone else's return. Uh, if you go into it with that, then you're not going to make a clear decision because greed's an ugly monster, right? Greed's a big, big, horrible, ugly monster that whispers in your ear and it says things that you really shouldn't believe and listen to. And so uh, that can have a huge impact on your ability to make good decisions. And so 
um, and mindset also uh, clouds the way you might look at different asset classes as well, um, because then you start to delve into into beliefs. Does that kind of answer your question, Aaron? Yeah, that that does. And when you're giving the example of uh, regret and timing, uh, I, ca I can't help but think of uh, all of the buy now pay later uh, companies. Yeah. I mean, Afterpay did exceptionally well. They sold the Square at just the right time. Uh, nailed it. Nailed it. Like, that's that's incredible. But then when you look at the others, if you look at uh, other listed ones, ZipPay, for example, it's it's gone right down. It's really suffered. 95% a drop in, in price, I believe, in value. I think so, something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think it was 90% last I checked, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, remarkable. Isn't that crazy? Uh, you could only imagine what those founders are feeling because I'm sure that they got offers as well. Yeah, no doubt. Um, mm. Yeah, crazy. Mm. Okay, so th those are some of the mistakes that you see people make, especially around their mindset mm. when they're making investment decisions. Yeah. The regret, the timing, and the amount of greed which they have. Are there any other mistakes that you see people making with regards to their investing? Yeah, I think that um, a great deal of people lack a plan and, you know, my, my view on planning is um, you can insert um, one of the many quotes here, uh, but I've got a couple of favorites. Um, planning is invaluable. Plans are hopeless. I think that was Eisenhower. Um, my favorite one is Mike Tyson. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. Um, the first one's probably more... Um, uh, appropriate for this conversation. The second one has an incredible visual on it, which is getting punched in the face by Mike Tyson. In other words, no plan survives contact with the enemy, right? Um, so, yep. But the point is to sit down and think about what you would like that imagined and unseen future to look like, which is quite hard because you've got to factor in a couple of different things there. Um, the first is the aspect of psychology which is that you're making a decision for your future self and that future self could be five or 25 years away from current self, but you're looking at it through the lens of your current self and your current self values, uh, I'll make this up, but let's imagine that you're um, a parent and you have a couple of young kids. So you're thinking about private schools, you're thinking about their education, you're thinking about maybe their ability to get into a um, uh, get into their first home. So that's the things that you're doing for others. Then, of course, there's your own needs, your desire to travel a bit, to be able to extricate yourself from paid employment if that's what you're doing. And so the things that are important to you today are going to change markedly, like in 25 years. They'll be incredibly different, right? You'll be thinking about security and certainty and the right community to be involved in and which bowling club to belong to. I jest, but it, you know, it's kind of, kind of true. Um, so over time, 10 pin bowling, of course, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the adage is in reality, um, over time, our values change far more than we think that we will. And it's very difficult for us to imagine that point in the future. So that's why it's such a good exercise to go through is just to imagine. So this is important. What's important to me today, but what about 10 years? What about 20 years? If that's the time horizons that I'm working on, then what are those things that are going to be of greatest value to me? The second is with the planning piece is to have a, a good amount of kind of risk um, awareness and risk tolerance built in there. And I view risk as being uh, the thing that you consider if an unforeseen event happened. Now, you don't know what that event might be, 
but it's going to have an impact upon everyone's uh, value, everyone's worth. Like the last three years have just been basically unbelievable, right? You know, there was many people that said that there's some form of a, um, a pandemic that's probably coming, but the responses from uh, the people that are responsible for you know, the governments and the uh, financial watchdogs and those sorts of things, who would have thought that the response would have been to print billions upon billions or trillions in the US case of money and then pump it into the economy to support the economy, which then people went out and bought a whole bunch of consumer goods and crypto and NFTs and all these other kind of crazy things. Who would have pred- predicted that that was going to be the case, right? Mm-hmm. Well, nobody did because as soon as we went into lockdown, all the economists are like, well, the property market's going to drop by between 10 and 30%. And in New Zealand, it nearly doubled in two years. Right? It's coming, it's easy, mm-hmm. quite a long way off that. And I understand that in places like Sydney and Melbourne, uh, the same kind of thing happened. So you know, very, very difficult to see what those events are, but there will be some events at some stage in the future. So it's about looking to go, well, if there's an event, what's the thing that's going to happen? And so, um, sorry, not what's, what will I do about that thing? And making yep. sure that you adhere to what I believe is one of the absolutely critical things about uh, managing your money is to protect your capital, like protect your capital at, um, uh, at not all costs, but just, you know, make it the absolute number one priority uh, because, Frequently what we end up doing, what people end up doing, especially once they start to accumulate some uh, wealth, is that they start, they, they move the goalposts away. And I see okay. this quite regularly with people, is that um, uh, entrepreneurs especially, they'll be in their business and uh, there's consequences to everything, but the entrepreneur that is pursuing, I don't know, let's, let's say $10 million of net worth. Um, so, you know, that person has to work fairly long hours. They're trading off time with their family. They're trading off possibly their health. Their freedom is going to be traded off, and so you know they're, they're fairly invested uh, directly in making sure that that um, uh, provides the return that they're after. And so um, you know consequences we've got to consider of every decision that we make in the future, which is quite hard to do, but it's a really it's a really valuable thought process to go through. Yeah, I mean before we advise clients on any for uh, on any amount of investing or how it's going to be invested, we've got to consider the timeline, mm-hmm. how long they're actually going to be investing for. Uh, if it's in your personal name versus some form of pension or super or four hundred one k or IRA or whatever, uh, it's a it's a different ball game, right? Yep. Especially then, depending on your age, when you're going to access, when you can access it, when you're actually going to choose to access it, right? So, but then also, how you're going to feel when you're checking the market? Mm. If you if you invest in something which is well researched and well thought through, and you know your investment time frame, you know how long you're going for, and if you saw that it dropped by twenty percent, how would you feel? If you saw it drop by thirty percent. 40%, 50%, how do you feel? And it's a definitely powerful questions. And the flip side is true as well, right? When you're planning for the future, you were talking about how your values change over time. The We we use it specifically for that purpose as well. Uh, when we're, before we help advise people on financial decisions or help coach them through it, we want to see what they want their life to look like in 10 years time. Because let's just say they're a, they're a couple with young kids well, in 10 years' time, your kids aren't going to be so little anymore. Right. They're going to be 10 years older. Yeah. All the problems that you th- that you have right now aren't going to be your problems in 10 years. You're going to have different problems. Mm. It's worthwhile considering what those problems will be. But when you take that away, then you're, you're much freer to consider what you actually need and what you actually want. I suspect that helps with financial decisions, at the least. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And I, was, I was then going to ask you, uh, off the back of that values part, what... What role do your values have in the investment choices you make, mm. the investment activity you're responsible for? Yeah. 
Um, so I'll give probably a couple of examples. Um, so, uh, and this is through the lens of being a property investor in New Zealand, but an international investor in crypto and in um, uh, equities. Uh, crypto, by the way, doesn't form a huge part of my portfolio. It's about kind of two to three percent of the total value. So um, most of um, you know most of it about 50, 60 percent, 55 percent is in commercial and industrial property. Um, so in New Zealand, we have had this long-term situation where there was no capital gains tax and a tax advantage around buying and holding residential property. Right. So it was this golden asset class that existed. And it was a very, I've got strong views on this, um, it was a very lazy way of making money. The only home that I've ever owned is the one that I live in. And for a period of time, I've not owned the home that I've lived in because I believe that my money has been better placed elsewhere. In New Zealand, that isn't the case for a lot of people. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs that have bought a few houses. One baby boomer that owns 140 houses, which is just, when you think about it, it's absolutely ludicrous because as an individual, you're buying an asset with the expectation that that thing's going to go up over time. It'll double in around about seven years, give or take. That's probably going to change over the next few years, depending on what happens with immigration and housing stock and access to money and that sort of stuff, of course. Uh, but if you're just sitting there not doing anything to that investment and you're just waiting for the market to lift, I just think it's very lazy. And so mm. I, I actually abhor that as an asset class. I think it's terrible. It should be taxed. It shouldn't be tax advantageous to you because the consequence in New Zealand is that we now have, uh, depending on which metric you look at, but the probably least affordable housing market in the entire world. And we're this tiny little economy down the bottom of the planet. Mm. It's a regulator's problem. We've had various governments promise to do something about it, but they never have because it's too risky for those people. Because for most Kiwis, their view on investing is to buy an investment property, right? And it's just crazy. There's been some changes made recently, but there's a lot of work to be unpacked. So for me, as a value, uh, I don't have a specific, you know, uh, value which is pushing me away from it, but there's a, a really good degree of like equity and fairness. And I just don't think that that's fair or reasonable because what value are you bringing? Now, don't get me wrong, that's very different from someone who's a property developer who buys, builds, creates, and takes a risk, does some leverage to do that thing, but they turn one home into 10 townhouses or something. And that's a, that's a very, very different proposition. So, and we need people like that in the world. But if you buy and you just sit on that thing, then you're kind of um, contrary to, um, in my view, what's additive to the economy. Because it's not just about yourself. Most people act in what's the best interest for themselves. but. Um, I think that that's a um, that's a very short-term view. You know, we're very we've become very individualistic as a world, as opposed to collective, which is what we have come from historically. Um, so other values for me. So I value contribution. Uh, that in fact, that, sorry, I'll say that again. One of my core values is contribution. Uh, service is another way to think about that. And so um, my portfolio of 44 or 45, I forget, um, early stage angel type investments have been made uh, because I would I like to be in the sector. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur by, by nature. I've started six businesses now. And so it's important to me being, to be in that sector, but also to assist others. And so I don't just do it through the provision of money and um, taking a small amount of equity, 
uh, but also the contribution of um, insight and any kind of expertise that I can offer those people to help them scale and grow their businesses. So that, that kind of meeting of that service, that um, contribution thing uh, is important. Another one of my values is curiosity. Um, so when things like um, crypto turned up, and as I mentioned, I started to invest in crypto in 2018, 2017, 18, I forget which year it was. I came across it in 2012. It seemed like it was a, um, uh, an absolute Ponzi scheme at that stage. Turns out that it wasn't. Um, so I don't regret not investing at that stage. Uh, I had no idea where it was going to go. Uh, and so I started to do it later on. When NFTs come along, I, I uh, buy art. I wouldn't consider myself an art investor. I'm an art collector uh, because I have the ability to, to have some beautiful things. And, and I, I love to be surrounded by those and have others come and enjoy those beautiful things on the walls. It's the, kind of the, one of the only material things that I, that I have. Uh, and so um, I started to look at NFTs and I thought there's just no intrinsic value in this thing because a lot of the time it's created by a machine. And so that curiosity led me into looking into that though. So that's probably some ways that my values have played out for my investing. And you talk, I'm, I'm really interested about this part of contribution and service because most people when they're thinking about uh, investing, they're thinking about how much wealth they're going to be able to create. There's got to be a purpose as to how they're applying their wealth. And for most people, it's what's going to give me a greater return and allow me to sleep at night. Allow me to sleep at night as in I'm not taking on too much risk, but also that I'm not doing the wrong things, right? Which is why ESGs become so uh, so important to a lot of people. Um, and so that that's obviously come into play with regards to property, right? You found a, like, you know of a tax haven, which has done remarkably well for the entire time you've you've looked at it and you've known that you've you've had pretty high confidence it's going to continue to do well and you've decided to not put the money in there right in australia it's a bit different because the only the only one which is capital gains tax-free is the one which you're living in right. all the others you're paying tax on and land tax right. on as well right. um which is good but you still have capital gains discount which i guess is to drive uh if you've held it for long enough uh so to drive people to hold onto things for longer which i think is to your point, something that you're not exactly keen on either. But my point is that you've you've known that uh, this is a really good investment. You've known that you could build a lot of wealth. You could have you could have 140 properties, be collecting rent on all of them, and and just be able to sell them and without having to pay any capital gains or any tax at all. And so it's cost you. You'd have more money had you done that. I'm guessing. I haven't done the calculation, but um, if I had started to accumulate properties when I uh, was interested in them and I had the resources to do so, which was in my 20s, then, uh, you know, typically for people, you buy one a year as one of the models that people work towards. And then when you have a windfall, then you might buy half a dozen in the course of a year. And so um, probably uh, the number that sits at the bottom of the spreadsheet would be quite a bit bigger if that was the path that I'd chosen to head down. Uh, back in those days, but I chose not to. So yeah, so I probably have not left some money on the table, but I've made a decision which is congruent with my values, as opposed to making one which is incongruent, which would make me hypocrite, um, or I'd have to change my value. Okay, now why, why is that so important to you? Because a lot of people would be thinking, man, that's just crazy. Like, you expect something to go up 100% over seven years, mm. and with no tax on it, and depending on the tax rate which you're paying, uh, maybe you'd have to get 200% in other investments over those seven years. And yet you're saying, I'm going to hold true to my values. Why? It's my integrity. Uh, okay. all, all I am is my integrity. I think that all any of us are is our integrity. Our integrity is the thing that stays in the room after we are not there. 
it's the thing that people think and say about us when we're not around. And whilst I don't overly value what others think about me, the notion of leaving others in a situation which is worse than I found them, because it's very important to me to leave people in a better state than I found them, and so elevate them, give them some insight, give them some tools, if it's charity, give them some money, uh, is really important to me. So if I was to um, act in a way and congruent with my values, then my integrity is a question. Okay. And so maybe, maybe this is a nice, uh, a nice segue to start talking about the various strategies you employ and some of the considerations that you have for it. So for example, tax needs to be a consideration with investing, but there are some people who are uh, some experts in investing who say tax should never be the factor that you consider. You should be considering how much you're going to be making. And there are others who I believe are slightly wiser uh, who will say that if you don't consider tax, then you're you're not considering how much you're actually earning because you need to consider your returns net of tax yeah. when you like when you eventually consider your exit strategy. But where does tax as well as risk as well as income and capital growth and all these other as aspects? Where do they come into play if you're going to try and order them? Yeah, okay. It's a big question. Um, so mm. I think it's changed for me over time uh, quite quite markedly. And again, it's coming from the position of being able to achieve um, to a degree what I set out to achieve, and then it's a case of building on top of that. So I took greater risks earlier on in my investing career as a proportion of the total uh, net worth that I carried than I would mm -hmm. today. Uh, so there's a quote um, that I've got somewhere here. Um, oh, there's a couple of things. Um, so if there's an equivalent amount of money that we would make or lose, the pleasure of making the same amount of money that you would lose is far outweighed by the pain of losing that amount of money, right? Yeah, I think I've heard Tony say that in the past of your people work harder to get 20,000, uh, sorry, they'll work harder to protect the 20,000 which they have than they will to go out and get another 20,000. Yes, yes. Yeah. There's some people that have dispelled that as a psychology, but it's one of those difficult things to measure because it's so subjective um, for different people, right? Um, so, we have totally lost my train of thought, Harry. Okay, well, um, what, I'll, what I'll say is I'm going to throw out a couple of uh, priorities which you have with any of the investment strategies which you have cool. uh, and then we'll go through and we'll order and if there are other ones which I've left mm -hmm. out and we can add those in as well right so we've got capital I'm just writing these down got capital preservation uh, we've got capital growth we've got income and that's obviously different to cash flow mm -hmm. and we have taxes we have ethics or I'll put that in brackets of value alignment mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe, um, I know that that's probably the yeah. majority of it okay, that cool. I can think of right now. Um, so which one's most important? Yeah. So, uh, today capital, uh, protection is probably the most important thing for me. Um, yep. so making sure what I've accumulated is not at risk in a market, which is full of turmoil and full of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and also sitting on a sufficient amount of cash that I can get through a year of very difficult times, uh, and make sure that I don't, um, uh, suffer any kind of loss of that, um, of that capital. Um, so 
Uh, okay, so that that's actually slightly different to the capital preservation of the investment. It sounds like the most important part to you is that you can stick to the horizon, like you can stick to the timeline yes. of the investment. Yes. So you have you have spare cash lying around, or you have a runway for any of your investments. Yes. I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so coming back to the point that I was alluding to earlier on, um, time and market um, is the most important determinant, right? Um, anything that compounds, you stretch and you add another year onto the back end of your compounding, that's when the real gains are made. And so if you have to pull out of the market or, or remove yourself from an investment before that opportunity is present, like a lot of people are exiting equities at the moment. And um, I think you could probably argue that it's, it's one of the better times to invest in equities right now. Mm-hmm. Still a lot of uncertainty that's coming and we have no idea what the next couple of years will hold. But um, there's, relatively speaking, some some pretty good um, uh, value-based investments that are around. So <laughs> they're happy. They're happy to pay at the top of the market. They're not happy to pay when it's discounted right. 40 percent or 30 percent. Because the yeah. sentiment is negative, right? And there's so much negative sentiment that's out there because negative sentiment garners so much more interest and so much more press from people than positive sentiment does. And so mm-hmm. the market will take off uh, quite some period in advance of when the positive sentiment will take off. You know, it takes a while for mm-hmm. the sentiment to catch up to where the market's actually going, in my opinion. Yeah. So. Um, Protection over the horizon, over the timeline, you're right, is probably the most important thing to me now uh, at the moment, and this may change. Um, so in the last couple of years, it hasn't been income, uh, but I have some objectives that I've set for myself over the next um, three to five years that I'd like to achieve. And so uh, I've been on the sidelines for a period of time for the last couple of years, and that's been really enjoyable. I haven't been CEOing something for that period, and I'm just about to get back involved in a couple of things. Uh, one is a charity, I'm starting a charity this year, which I've been researching over the last couple of years. Uh, and then the other is um, uh, dialing up some advisory stuff as well. And so that will see me crank up the income level over the course of the next couple of three years. And um, I've had a shift in the portfolio somewhere, which is um, you know commercial stuff moves around, you have tenants that exit and that sort of thing. And so I've kind of gone, you know, what does my life look like in five to 10 years time and then adjusted my actions today to accommodate how I would like that to look. And so um, for me, that means dialing up the income. So that's probably number two. Um, but the ethics, I wouldn't put number three, I'd put it as an overarching thing that always has to sit there, you know, follow your ethics and your integrity. Um, this goes actually, funnily enough, all the way back to when I started to have some decent resources to invest in, uh, in equities. So the late 90s, early noughties. And um, there was a company that I looked at um, Metal Storm, I think was the name of the company. This is just post 9-11. And so uh, Metal Storm was a weapons researcher and manufacturer. And that developed this gun which could fire, I want to say it was something in the region of a thousand rounds a second. Wow. Ter- terrifying, right? Absolutely terrifying. terrifying. And I looked at the stock and I was like, wow, look at the returns on it. 9 just happened. I don't know, it's probably going to go quite markedly up over the next little while. And then I was like, hold on, Josh. Is it, do you support investing in a company that's going to kill people? No, of course I don't. Right? Well, people don't, you know, machines don't kill people. People don't kill people and governments kill people. Okay, well, there's still, the thing has to sit in the middle. It's like, would I invest in a uh, nicotine uh, tobacco company? No, I wouldn't. Right? Um, that's a really simple one. Do I invest in a petrochemical? No, I don't. Right, so those are again the ethics, but um, and then back to the on on this point on this point of ethics. Yeah, um, there's. Do you see any difference between investing uh, in something which you have? Okay, so you've got an ethical issue with it. Let's just use tobacco for example. Yeah. Um, 
and you've got an ethical issue with it. Do you see equivalence between like direct fundraising, so you become first market uh, investor, rather than second market, you're buying it from someone else who's bought it previously? Do you see an equivalence between those or a difference? No, no. If, if your money is tied up in owning in some context that asset, then it doesn't matter how you come across it. Um, my, my wife, Tina, for example, she, uh, her retirement fund, uh, which is the KiwiSaver in New Zealand, um, she just set it to be a growth portfolio. And then she realized that she didn't take an ethical lens across things. And so she moved it. And I think it was about 20, late 2019, early 2020, into being an ethically based portfolio, which means things like no, no weapons, no uh, nicotine, no tobacco, etc. Uh, and funnily enough, that was the time that everyone else started to kind of wake up to that. And so there was a whole lot of money that poured in and it outperformed the market <laughs> in the next 12, 12 or so months. <laughs> then it underperformed the market. We ended up... I mean, Mike Barry, Michael Barry calls that a, a bubble now, right. the, the ETF bubble, but you sure, why not? Yes. Um, okay, so, and that, I think I picked up on something which you just shared there. You, you use the terminology of if it's tied up in owning it. Mm. Is that because it's stopping you from investing in other things that could have a positive impact? Is that the primary reason? Oh, um, or is yeah. it just being associated with it? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yes, uh, but also through supporting that asset class, you're essentially um, endorsing that you think that that's okay. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, like the practical application, obviously there's sentiment. The, the only, I've been thinking about this for quite a while, obviously, uh, and I have these conversations with clients. But I guess the only practical element or the practical impact from investing in a company that you don't agree with on the secondary market is that it might make it more effective for them with future uh, equity raises. That's the, that's the only, that's probably, or maybe additional security for, uh, for loans or access to capital. That's probably the only practical implication that I could imagine with going in secondary market. But for you, it's probably just more, you don't want to hold it. You don't want to touch it. Yeah. I don't want to endorse that type of activity, whatever that might be. Mm. Okay. Mm. All right. So we've got time and market and you got your, the, that's the first thing that you focus on. Can you stay in it for long horizon yeah. uh, or at least for the target horizon? And then you've got the second one being your income target in five years. Mm -hmm. So what will you need for income in five years time yeah. rather than today? Yeah. And then you've got the ethics or value alignment. Mm -hmm. And then what's next? Um, I forget the short list of what um, the other options. Uh, uh, the, the remaining so four that we listed were the, the, remain, the remaining four that we've got: capital preservation, capital growth, cash flow, and taxes. Right now, capital preservation. Mm -hmm. Historically, for the last 25, 30 years, it's been capital growth, but right now it's capital preservation because. Uh, it is a very, very volatile market currently. And so I'd rather be in the position when things recover, whatever that looks like, that I have the ability to be able to act along the way, but also at that point in time. And if I've had a massive depletion of capital or if I've taken some uncalculated or some silly risks, uh, then I'll risk that. But also going back to the very start of our conversation, I've been lucky enough to be able to get the position that 
um, I've achieved this financial freedom thing. And what I've learned is that that to me should be really nurtured and protected. And so I think that it's too easy. Remember I alluded to a lot of people get lost along the way of what their original objectives were and they start chasing things that are actually not that important to them. And so they risk everything in the hope that they might double or triple that thing when they never needed that additional upside. And so I'm quite clear upon the life, the lifestyle, the level of giving and what I'd like the next 50 years to look like. And so it would be ludicrous of me to take a big risk on that capital pool. I still do take risks, obviously buying anything carries an element of risk. Um, you know, <laughs> funnily enough, I, I took a bit of my um, ETF portfolio and um, uh, put it into bonds uh, six, nine months ago. And what's happened to the bond market? I mean, that's, that's safe as houses normally. Yeah. No, quite the yeah. opposite. So you just never know, right? Um, yeah. It didn't have a market impact upon uh, the total position, but it was a funny exercise to go through. Um, so, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, it, it does. Um, and what I'm hearing you, what I'm really hearing you say is that you've got to be clear on what you want in the future rather than kind of just what, what feels good now or what you think you should want. I mentioned that um, I'm, I'm a builder, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, mm. I feel qualified to be able to give myself that moniker and identity now, having started um, half a dozen companies. Um, mm -hmm. And there's different types of business owners. Um, I'm the person that likes to start, build, but not operate. And so I tend mm -hmm. to exit either the entirety of the business, sell the whole business, or at least get myself out of the operations of the business once it turns into operate mode, which means that the rapid growth has leveled out to a degree. There's different challenges that you're facing inside the business, but I'm a, I'm a start and a builder. And so I've built a combination of product, software product-based companies and services, uh, technology services-based businesses. The latter, the services-based businesses, when you run them well, tend to be quite good cash-producing machines. So um, run a great business, um, extract the income out of the business, and then invest it in asset classes uh, that I understand and that align with all of my objectives at that time and hopefully into the future properly as well. And then uh, continue to build the businesses alongside that. And so it's a pretty simple model, but build great cash producing businesses that I'm able to take the income out of those and then invest them in interesting and, um, you know, things that align with my, interesting things that align with my values. Why do you only take the income out of it? Why don't you take equity out of it? As in sell it or sell a majority stake oh, to yeah, someone yeah, else sorry. and then apply the equity which you have? Yeah, I've, I've done both. Um, and mm -hmm. in fact, um, funnily enough, uh, we've actually just been through that exercise with um, my wife's company, which I'm a portion of, uh, and so that's the fourth time that I've done it, to sell shares to key staff members inside the business. And it takes them on a wealth creation journey, um, gives you longevity and certainty of uh, having that person as a part of the business, and it gives them exposure to being a business owner where they may ordinarily not have had that opportunity. So um, so very much, yeah, no, I, um, uh, I simplified income because uh, it could be PAYE, it could be dividends, or it could be selling equity in the business as well. So I've done all three of those things. Yeah, okay. So some of them you want to build up and then you continue to you continue to just get uh, income from it, yep. right? Like the 
I hate using this analogy because I have a plant-based lifestyle and ethics around it. But say that you've got the cow and then you're you're getting the milk which is coming from it, right? Yep. You're getting the milk from the cow. Uh, or you can eventually decide to go and get the meat from it. You're going to get one of two things. Right. Um, and I guess it depends on, from your perspective, which one's going to give you the most further down the line. Yes, which will meet the objectives that are important to me um, at yeah. that point as much and looking as much into the future as I can. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, there's there's obviously this, like there's this concept of hands-on investing rather than outsourcing. Active right, hands passive. on, you're mm. you're doing it yourself. Or not not quite active versus passive. Okay. Um, because active versus passive is um, passive is basically I'm just gonna be following an index approach. Mm. Uh, and you could be you could be strategically allocating assets towards various passive approaches. You're not choosing the specific investments which are underlying it, uh, which is what active ultimately does. But the hands-on is where you're putting in a lot of your time, a lot of your energy, a lot of your skills, a lot of your resources to build it up. Outsourcing is you're saying, I'm not the one that's going to be putting in all of those. I'm going to get someone else to do it. Uh, I'm getting the sense that you're much more towards the hands-on side. Is that right? Yeah, largely. Um, so with some exceptions. Um, so, And it's changed over time to a degree as well. Uh, so... If we go back to the 90s and early noughties when I was trading derivatives and uh, trading equities as well, um, then I was responsible. I was very active at uh, managing our portfolio. So that was the active versus passive thing. So sorry, I've gone back and muddled up the, um, the very, no, very good uh, descriptor that you just gave. Um, so in the business investing side of things, so in the venture or angel investing side of things, then much more in the active camp. Um, mm -hmm. The originally my first four investments were as a uh, as a lone wolf. They were things that I discovered through my network and did the own did my own due diligence. I then joined an angel group, which uh, I made another half a dozen investments through that group. Didn't feel like they were necessarily the right people for me to work alongside and invest alongside. So I actually started with a group of others another angel group called Flying Kiwi Angels, um, zero fees and a very active intention behind the money that we invest. So smart money is the descriptor that tends to get given to it. So rather than just putting money in and waiting for the, um, you know, the uh, company to succeed and revenue to go up and have an exit, get very involved in it. So I may do it personally myself. Um, I may take on a directorship and advisory um, governance, et cetera, role um, inside the business, or I may, uh, one of my colleagues might do the same thing, but that's, denotes that all of us inside that that group of what are we 65 70 odd people these days uh that there's someone that's being active inside that business maybe me maybe someone else but yes long-winded answer to your question much more of that active camp yeah okay and then when you're uh at any times you outsource your investments to others mm. do you ever pay someone to just make investments for you or just to manage it for you yeah so um the uh equities these days um with a very small exception of the money that I've invested in equities, about 10% is my own direct investing. Um, so I'll go and directly source a stock and buy it myself. And that's yeah, really okay, really okay over the last couple mm -hmm. of years. Um, mm -hmm. Over time, it's done probably pretty well. Uh, but I, uh, back to my earlier descriptors, I'm, I'm not much of a trader. Um, I have been, but um, what I discovered about, what I learned about myself is that I 
didn't deal terrifically well with the massive swings. I've never done margin investing, so I've never leveraged, I've never borrowed to invest in um, securities or crypto. And I think that's a, a very, very hugely risky play for people to make. It can generate a lot of money, uh, but it's very, very risky. So you've got to understand your own risk appetite. I've, so I've never, I've never pursued that. Um, so I'm much more interested. Um, so, so I do have a the ETF kind of stuff is done through a wealth management firm on my behalf. So uh, that's the stuff that I outsource. Oh, actually, that's um, there's one more thing that I do. Um, so my angel venture investing is um, seed with a little bit of pre-seed. So seed means that the company has some revenue and a product. Pre-seed means that they are typically pre-revenue. They may have a prototype, they may not even have a product. And so pre-seed means that you have to look through hundreds and hundreds of different companies to uh, assess, you know, to get across things that you'd be worthwhile investing in. Seed, well, there's a binary yes, no answer that you've got to meet up front. Do they have revenue? Yes or no. If it's no, then I have a firm that does that for me. I've invested in a, in a fund. And so I don't have to do that hundreds and hundreds of companies. I wait until they're at the seed stage. And so they've got some revenue. They've got people that are prepared to give them money for their crazy or wonderful idea. Um, and then I just have to work out the usual things around the assessment of whether that investment's the right one for me or not. Is that the only yes or no? Like, is that the only binary? No, there's many actually. Um, so mm. um, startup investing is as much art as it is science. Uh, and it's hugely risky. Um, people tend to focus on the returns. Um, and uh, I tend to, uh, people often focus on the returns of the individual investment as opposed to the collective performance of the portfolio. And so if I was to do that, then I mentioned earlier on that I've had um, four, so 10% of my angel investment portfolio has failed. So they're not in business anymore. Three of those are my friends' companies. Um, so um, <laughs> do with that what you will. Um, and then I've had um, a couple of exits that are in the 20 uh, times, you know, the 20 times range, 20 to 30 times range. I have one that is sitting in there. Sorry, 20 to 30 times uh, return investment. of your investment? Yeah, okay. 20 to 30 Fair times enough. the original investment. Um, there was one that was due to go 55x. Wow. And... I mean, to put that into perspective, it was a small amount of money that I had in that company. Um, so it was $12,500. And 55X would have seen me return over $700,000. So we throw these numbers out, 55X, what does that mean? That means a you know, big, big, big return on that original, relatively small investment. Um, yeah, a 10K investment would have given you 550K back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's one in the portfolio, which will be probably about 200X when the exit happens. So um, remarkable, absolutely remarkable return on investment. But I've got to balance it across the rest of the things where there's um, some like, uh, zombies are what they're called, which is the walking dead. They're, um, so they're um, uh, they're alive, uh, but they're not meeting their objectives. Um, and so there's some that are like that. There's some that are, you know, um, uh, going two or three times. You know, it's, it's, a real, it's a real mix of things. So so you, I guess you're investing your, or at least from your track record, that was from how many, how many companies have you gone into now? to 44 yep. and so you've had 10% of them fail yep. right so 10% you get 0x back I've lost that uh, it's gone yeah you, yep. you lose it all that your return is 0% yep. uh, or negative 100% and then you've got others which are positive 
20,000%, right? Or you kind of target the 20 to 30,000% or the 200x is yeah. 200,000. Yeah. Oh, so that's an incredibly unusual outlier. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, Uber, Airbnb um, kind of territory. Um, and there's just, there's just not that many of those around. Um, I can tell you that mathematics actually i learned this um once i started to dial up the amount of um, money that i had invested in in this space and so a wonderful gentleman called bill Payne um uh gave me some insight uh, he's no longer with us um he was one of the really early people in the angel space from the 1970s and 80s in the states and he had about 67 investments and um at that stage i had four and the first one that i'd made had gone 24, 25x, right? So my $10,000 as a 27-year-old had turned into about $250,000 as a 33, 34-year-old. I didn't need that money at that stage because I'd started my businesses, it was doing well. So I put it into a fund and then I started to build the, the fund was mine. Uh, and so I started to build out that, um, that portfolio. And so I was another four companies in by the time I met Bill. And um, Bill explained to me, and this truism, I think has just started to change and I'll come to how the change is operating right now. Uh, but um, the uh, across an, a portfolio of 10 companies, you'll have uh, three that you'll lose all of the money. So about 30%, you'll um, 100% loss. You'll have three that will uh, return you around about the money that you put in, or maybe just slightly more. And so you're still slightly behind where you started in the portfolio. Then you'll have about three that will give you one and a half, maybe two times the money that you put in. So nine companies, and you're back at zero. The last one, and it may be the first investment you make, maybe the last one, you don't know where it's going to be, will go 20 to 30x. So that's where you make your money. So I met Bill, I've got one that I've had an exit from, and it was a stellar exit, and it was higher than the range that he had talked about. And I then had made these next four investments, and funnily enough, one of those was one of the ones that failed. And I explained the story to him, knowing how this mathematics might play out for me over time. And I said, so I've made this one. What do you think I should do? And he goes, get out now. <laughs> Stop angel investing. Super high risk, man. I, I, I say to anyone that has any interest in doing it, I said, why would you get involved in this space? And if their first answer is to generate high returns, I'm like, this is probably not the space for you. The key reason to get involved in angel or venture investing is to have exposure to the types of people that you want to work with and you're helping them grow cool companies that create jobs, pay tax, grow New Zealand Inc or Australia Inc and then ex export cool stuff to the world. That's the primary reason for doing it. And then second or third, probably third, is to generate returns. Uh, but um, if it's returns is number one, then it's not the right space for you because it's, it's, it can be very, very stressful. And the second thing I say to people is only put money into the space that you can afford to lose and you don't care about it. So when I, when Active Angel Investors write a check, that money's gone. You don't even think about it anymore. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So that, yeah, that, that's, that's important to note because people would be hearing what you're sharing here. And obviously a big part of what you do now is with startup investing. Like it's, maybe it's not a huge part of your net wealth, but it's, it's a big part of your intentions yeah. at the moment. And a lot of that because value alignment and I guess, cause as you've said, you've got a lot to lose, right? You've got to financial dependence and then you realize you actually didn't need the, that much to, to be financially independent. So you've, you've got money to lose, right? But you're then producing these incredible returns. Like if, if all of those investments that you made, those seed investments which you did were equal amounts 
and you've lost four of them, well, okay, that's fine. Uh, one of them, like if you lose, if you have five investments and one of them goes 5x and the other four all go to zero, well, then you've still broken even. And you've had four that have failed out of 44. And uh, there are some who are, you call them zombies, walking dead. But then 20 to 30x, 55x, and then obviously a huge outlier, 200x. It sounds like your this is both value and ethically aligned for you, aligned with your approach to investing, or at least your mindset and philosophy of investing, uh, but also probably the most profitable part of all your investments. So on a um, return on investment basis, on a dollar for dollar basis, then mm -hmm. yes, um, but it hasn't been the biggest contributor to my uh, net worth. The biggest contributor to the net worth has been the commercial and industrial property. Sure. Well, that's because it was like 60% of your wealth, right? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is that that's where I take the leverage. So that's where I take the debt uh, because I have confidence in overall what's going to happen in the market. I buy what's referred to as distressed assets. A distressed asset is one that is untenanted or undertenanted. So I'm buying the land in the building. So I'm not buying the tenancy. I'm not buying the income stream because there isn't one that sits in there. And so I have confidence that I can buy something. Here's a great little tip that people don't know about commercial and industrial property is that um, you can submit an offer on a property and have that offer accepted, but you're still conditional. So what I've done in a number of instances is buy a property. I'm conditional. So the property is called uh, being under contract. So I have the right to that property, but I'm not obligated to buy that property at that stage. What I then do is I go and secure tenants over that next time frame. I might have 30 days, but realistically, I've got 60 to 90 days, depending on what the, uh, the vendor will be prepared to, to take from me. I go out and find tenants, and then I sign a lease or an agreement to lease. And then uh, that is contingent upon me going unconditional on the property. So risk goes from being very, very high to unbelievably low. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, that's not something you can do every single instance. And if there's, if it's got a fairly large square meter, it's then I might be able to lease a third, maybe as much as a half before I have to go unconditional on the property. But it just markedly reduces my risk exposure, firstly, and it also cranks up the valuation of the property. There's a, a property that um, has no tenancies inside it is worth markedly uh, less than one that has tenancies and is generating a, a, a income. Yeah. I mean, how much, how much leverage are you usually willing to accept on these types of investments? Yeah, it's what the bank is willing to accept. And so that's changed yeah, okay. quite markedly uh, over time. So as, as much as as much as you can get your hands on, basically. Yeah, it, it's during times it's been that way. Um, my leverage these days is about 30, 33%, uh, give or take, um, LVR. Um, so, but it's been as high as 55%. Uh, but um, the last, um, let's say, four years, uh, there's been very, very limited opportunities to buy anything reasonable value. So um, I've sold something, uh, which is not normally what I do, but it was a good opportunity to do so at the time. Um, and I bought something relatively small. Um, so those two kind of essentially balanced each other out. Um, so the consequence of that is that I've been able to pay down quite a lot of debt and go from the 55% down to the 33% give or take. So that gives me um, stripe powder is, um, is what the, um, the terminology is. So um, I should should be able to uh, once some opportunities crop up. 
And um, I mentioned this earlier on, but um, any changing market, no matter what that is, is um, an opportunity to um, uh, create some returns. Any changing market is an opportunity to create returns. Yes. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to ask you more about that to find more of the opportunities that you've been able to find in the past. But while we're still talking about debt, uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts with regards to how people typically use debt? Obviously, there's lifestyle debt versus investing debt. And then also more from the investing side, negative gearing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on both of those? Yeah. Um, so I have carried debt on my residential properties when I, and by mine, I mean the ones that I live in, as I mentioned, but I haven't had investment properties. Uh, and so I've carried a bit of debt when I was unable to pay cash for those things. I, I don't now. Um, I don't carry debt on the home. Uh, so that's just my personal preference. Um, that's, a, that's a risk mitigation thing. Um, so the home is separated from an ownership standpoint and if everything went wrong, I'd still have a house, right? That's the rationale behind it. Um, I do, uh, I mentioned I collect art. I also have a penchant for European sports cars. I've been through phases when I've had several at once. I have one now. It is a treat to myself, but I pay cash for it. So again, if something goes wrong, um, I'm not in the position that I have a $10,000 car lease that I have to pay every month because that's that's crazy money. And I see people doing that all the time. They buy a boat or a second home or an expensive car and they put it on tick in the belief that they're dollars $200,000 a month, a million dollars a month, whatever that number is, that they're having today will continue ad infinitum into the future and then something changes and they're stuck. I remember hearing about the um, NBA. There was a, a strike in the NBA. The players went on strike. And um, there were these players that were not long out of um, uh, out of university, out of college, and um, that all of a sudden been signed up, and, and they had this um, income of a million, three, five million dollars a year, unbelievable wealth. And so they go out and buy five cars and uh, two houses, and um, you know, bling and all that sort of stuff. And they said that's cool. If you come from nothing, I totally understand why that would be important to you. Then the players had to go on strike, not through their own choice, but because the league went on strike. And so there was a funny story about a guy that had um, uh, six Lamborghinis, not one, he had six. And of course he couldn't sell them because it was in uh, the GFC when this, uh, I think if my timing is not, is not wrong, um, don't quote me on that, but that was around about the time. Couldn't sell these Lamborghinis. He had to move back and home with his mum. So here's a guy that uh, was making a couple of $3 million a year, but that income stopped and his ability to pay these bills it all, it all evaporated because he signed up based upon future prospects of these things. So, um, so that's the first thing I, I observe people taking on consumer debt and uh, and home debt. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki um, talks about your home as being a liability, not an asset. Everything else beyond that point, he's a residential property investor. He, funnily enough, I believe, um, uh, went into liquidation um, during the GFC. I think that he was over leveraged and he had too many homes. Right. Is that, is, 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 okay. Do you know about that? I, I didn't know about that. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. He's gone, he's gone a little bit. It's gone a little bit left field lately either way. Um, yeah. But I was going to I was gonna ask, just before we start talking about negative gearing, while we're still talking about lifestyle assets, mm. um, I've seen some people successfully, I'm not recommending anyone does this because you've got to be able to manage it properly. Let's just say that you're really confident you can get 10% a year on, on, your, on your investments, which you make. And so what you decide to do is you say, I'm going to go into a novated lease where I'm going to give the car back. I'm just going to lease it for five years. Mm -hmm and then give the car back to the person who's providing me with the vehicle. And what I'm gonna do at the same time is I'm gonna invest in my, because obviously a car's a depreciating asset. Mm -hmm. 
so let's say you're buying something for 100k and then in five years time maybe it's going to be worth 50 or 40k right that's that's what happens with cars uh and if you're leasing it the whole time and you're managing to let's just say the lease is costing you 10 percent a year uh, of the 100k and you're able to earn at least 10 percent or more the 10 percent net of tax for example then you're going to be able to uh, have the asset that you want without losing the capital which you put up for it. Mm -hmm. So you don't have any depreciation, capital preservation, right? But you've got to be really confident about the returns you're going to be making on the investments. Yes. What are your thoughts on those types of strategies mm -hmm. that people could potentially employ? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a horses for courses thing. Um, so uh, if you've listened up until this point, you'll understand that my... Um, approach has been very much about geared off my own efforts and my own ability to generate um, outside of market returns and largely from my businesses, but then buying off, off properties and things. Um, if you're in a situation where, for example, you're a salary earner and you've got a high income, um, let's call that more than $250,000 a year. In New Zealand, it's about 2% of people earn more than that. Um, once it gets above 500,000, it's a very, very thin air. It's very, very thin air up, up there. Certainly New Zealand is anyway. And so you may decide that you've got the ability, you've got a special skill for finding and um, d uh, developing residential properties. So you might, you know, go, I can see something that's in a, in a great environment and I just need to spend 100 grand and I'll make that into 500 grand. Then you go, well, that makes sense for me to lease the car and then I can put the capital into this thing over here that I'm then going to trade, do the trading thing back to my nomenclature about um, the different types of money making uh, opportunities that you have and that would make sense I given my mentality I haven't gone deep into understanding the different kind of structures that exist for getting into cars because I go I'd much rather be in the situation where I own that asset and I do totally understand owning a depreciating asset is not a good thing but again coming back to my total situation because I always take a portfolio approach um, and I think that people should always take a portfolio approach is why I did that detailed breakdown about the different types of investment to go, well, they're irrelevant as a one-off because I've got some of there that lose money. So I need to look at the totality of the portfolio. And I think that's what people should do. It's funny because um, if you talk to people about stocks or if you talk to people about um, you know, any investment that they make, they tend to focus on the individual things that have made them the money. A gamblers are the same. I'm not a gambler, right? Um, but they'll go, I went to the casino last night and I won $5,000 on blackjack. I'm like, amazing. Um, how have you done over the last 12 months is the question I always ask. And so typically it's like, well, I'm marginally ahead or I'm probably behind, right? Because you've got to look at a portfolio approach. So what's the totality of return that someone's getting is the thing that I'm most interested in as opposed to point instances. And so, you know, back to the novated lease thing, um, it's not something I understand at any level. So I couldn't make a comment on whether that's the right thing for someone to do. Look at the portfolio look at the objectives and look at the person they're going to be over the medium to long term and then work out a decision if that's right or wrong for them would be my, um, my sense on. Do you, do you include your lifestyle assets as part of your, uh, as part like practically speaking, as part of your net wealth or are they just completely segregated? Yeah. So your home and your cars and everything, yes, they're depreciating or some are mm -hmm. appreciating whatever, uh, but that's all to the side. Segregated. It's not. Yeah, yeah so that's all lifestyle. Yeah. And when you're talking about portfolio, are you talking about your investments or what it's going to cost to your investment portfolio? So, or you're also including, like looking at your lifestyle assets as well? No. So portfolio is just the investment portfolio. Okay. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Okay. So you, anytime you're you're purchasing something, anything, you're defining for you, you're identifying for yourself: is this lifestyle or is it investing? Yes. And then if it's if it's lifestyle, it goes into that pool. If it's investing, it goes into this pool. And you know that if it's a lifestyle asset, it's going to be costing you money. Yep. Or it's by not getting the return, or the, hopefully positive return, you're getting on your other assets, right? Yep. Okay. And what about negative gearing? Yeah. Um, so again, it's circumstantial your ability to be able to absorb the fact that you have to continue to contribute to that asset. How likely is that? Back to the New Zealand residential property market, um, the tax load that opened up was that if your property was negatively geared, it would give you a great tax advantage. And so if you're earning a decent salaried income, you're just earning any salaried income, you have this negatively geared property and you're able to top it up by 50 or 500 or $5,000 a month or whatever that number might be, then it made much more sense for you to do it on that basis because of the leverage over time that you would see from that, um, uh, the difference between those two, the margin between those two. So now that loophole has been removed. Uh, so I personally don't believe in buying an asset that is negatively geared. I make the payment up front and then uh, my loans are always P and I. Uh, the P will vary. I'll negotiate with the bank based upon what my objectives are. So uh, sometimes it's been very low, sometimes it's been very high. It's been very high over the last couple of years, especially in that low interest regime. I didn't pay myself more money, I just paid it down. I just paid debt down. And so that coming back to the point that I made 55 down to 33 is because of the um, aggressive repayments that I was able to make um, over that time frame and not go out and treat myself to a whole bunch of new things. Um, for, for the for the listeners, do you want to explain what you mean between difference between principal and interest? Uh, principal, let's say you borrow uh, $100,000 and you've got a 10% interest rate. Um, so the principal is the $100,000 and then every year, it's based on the first year, you've got $10,000 of interest. And so, mm-hmm. uh, based on the first year only, otherwise you start getting the uh, hinky mathematics. And so <laughs> if I pay back $20,000 to the bank in that first year, then I've paid $10,000 of interest and I've paid $10,000 worth of principal. If I only pay the bank $10,000 in that first year, then I have only paid the interest. I have not paid the principal off. Yeah, and then you still pay the loan on the remaining, on the amount which you still owe, right? Yes. So as opposed to paying interest on 90, the, the 10%, which is 9,000 on the second year, because it's 90,000 you're still paying the 10,000 on the 100K every single year if you don't pay back the principal. Yes. Right? Okay, and you calculate how much the principal repayments are gonna be based on the cash flow or assess whether or not that's appropriate for you based on the cash flow of the investment? Can you repeat the question in a different way, Harry? Sure, so you go into an investment and you're deciding, you said that for some of them, the principal repayments are really low and for some of them, the principal repayments are much higher. Mm-hmm. Do you do that based on the income you're getting or the positive cash flow you're getting from that specific investment? Portfolio. Or are there other calculations? Portfolio. For yeah. So I look at the portfolio. entire portfolio. So at times it might make sense for me to buy something which the yield is less. So the yield is the percentage return that I'm seeing from the property based upon what the property is worth. So if the property mm-hmm. is valued at a million dollars and I'm receiving $100,000 and that's a 10% yield, so I look at the total yield that I'm getting out of the portfolio. I assess a property on an individual basis, but then look at how it's going to slot into the portfolio. 
and then my ability, obviously, to service that um, uh, that debt and that um, interest along the way as well. Okay, that's clever because then you're you're diversifying not just for diversifying sake. Some of yours, uh, some of your investments, I'm guessing, are going to be giving you uh, considerably. Uh, higher capital growth and some of them are probably going to be giving you a much higher income exactly. and so you're going to subsidize the ones which are going to give you capital growth with the ones that are giving you a positive income yep. Yep. okay cool i like that uh, thank you for sharing that um okay look as we as we start to wrap this up i i think it would be it'd be silly of us to not focus on your legacy of building wealth right the like the it's one thing to have money to be able to have the freedom to do the things that you want to do but then there are also impacts that you, because uh, I know you personally, I know that there are impacts that you want to have after you're gone, after you don't have any more time, right? After you don't have any more life. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, how do you plan to pass on your wealth? Mm. Both, both now, but also when you're no longer here. Mm. So that started already. Uh, so I've been contributing to a variety of charities for some years, and it was money for a long time. And I started to help some charities scale in the last couple of years and have um, decided that there's an opportunity to uh, go about changing the business of how people give. And so essentially doing a startup in the charitable space. Uh, so uh, that will take a bit of money and time over the next couple of years or so. But that aside, um, I don't have any children. Uh, my wife and I have opted to not have children. And so uh, that actually created quite a conundrum because for most people, it's a simple thing to do, I believe, is to simply go, well, um, availability for my wife and then and trust for the kids if they're young or whatever the circumstance, we'll leave it all to them, whatever the circumstance might be. Um, I've had to be a bit more considerate about it um, because I don't have that. And so I've provided for family um, in my will uh, and I have a combination of things being owned individually under my own name and then in a trading trust as well. And so I've provided for family um, to a degree, um, education, first home for um, uh, nieces, uh, for example, and then to, um, uh, to other family. And then uh, my wife, obviously, uh, this is all part of the estate. Uh, so residential assets and um, other kind of lifestyle assets will uh, all be passed to, to her and a bit of income uh, from the trust as well. Uh, but the remainder of it is um, my trustees are very clear that that's to go to charitable causes. So the giving that I do today will continue beyond my life. And so um, I've been quite clear about how the trust, which owns the great majority of the assets, has been established outside of the life lifestyles owned by me right, and my wife, um, for me. And so that all goes to her. Uh, but then the, um, and I derive income from the trust. Uh, but then with my demise, whenever that will be, uh, that trust will have obviously more assets then than it does today. And so that will all be given to charity. And so case of um, selecting the different types of causes that, um, that I care about. Yeah, great. And you're talking about it being managed in the way that you've instructed the trust to do, probably through fund managers and the like. Uh, and then it continues to distribute income. So it becomes a charity foundation rather than just saying, okay, uh, Josh is Josh is dead. This amount is going across to these charities and then just contributing the money to those charities. Correct. The trustee's job is to make sure that my wishes are carried out uh, after I'm not around and to make sure that the asset base is protected and that the income that's generated uh, then goes to the causes that I care about. Mm, cool. Yeah. Uh, so you still have some level of control, but it continues to contribute. And now 
I mean, I know that part of the reason you're having this conversation with me is because you want to teach others about money as well. You want to be able to make sure that people aren't making some of the same mistakes that you've made and that definitely they're not making the mistakes that you've seen a lot of other people make. What do you plan to teach the next generation about money? Mm, Yeah. Um, So I had a um, mantra, which um, if anyone asks me, then I'll I'll share with them. And um, I tweaked it. It used to be get rich slow. It's now get wealthy slow. Um, the difference between <laughs> can you decide? Can you define the difference? Yeah, between yeah happily, happily. Um, so, um, as as I understand and see it, um, rich is the demonstration or the display of having money. So it's the pursuit of lifestyle, as you rightly referred to them as, or materialistic assets: watches, houses, cars, boats, batches, planes, whatever that thing might be. So that's rich, the pursuit of things that make you look like you have money. Wealth is the ability to achieve freedom. That's the difference. Yeah. So, oh, you got a question about that? Oh, no, I was just going to share that immediately what comes to mind is Alex Hormozzi. Uh, have you seen any of Alex Hormozzi's stuff? He, he wrote an amazing book, $100 million offers. You, you're probably going to... You're going to read it and, sure. and okay, you're going to enjoy this well. Uh, 100M offers, you'll find it. Okay. And his, but if you see any of his content, like sure, his body, like he's made hundreds of mil. Um, uh, sure, he's got, um, he's a bodybuilder, he's got a lot of, um, he's got a very kind of big presence to him, but he doesn't wear anything flashy. Mm. A lot of the content he produces is just kind of in a dark, dingy room with terrible shadows yeah. and... I think one of them, I think one of the best videos I've seen him produce so far is uh, 28 Rules on How to Stay Poor. And his, I don't know, maybe he had some kind of injury as if he like broke his nose or something. He had tape over his nose uh, and he was wearing like an old tethered hat and he was in a wife beater shirt. And he's like, if you want to stay poor, then worry about what other people think of you. That's, that's, that's one rule to stay poor. That's the number one rule, right? <laughs> So sorry, I I, I got you. No, 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 you're all good. Um, I uh, I read something once um, that I'll, I'll, I'll reciprocate in the recommendation: the psychology of money. Um, if um, anyone hasn't read that, that's a that's a wonderful wonderful book. Um, Morgan Hounsel or something. The psychology of money is the name of the book. Um, but um, uh, he said nobody cares about your stuff as much as you do. <laughs> and so we get carried up in buying these things in the belief that it will make us look a certain way in the eyes of others that we care about what they think, but they actually don't really care that much. No. Yeah. No, I had a, I had a, a family member of mine who I, who I respect quite a bit is a, is an older guy as well. Uh, and when I was considering buying my most recent car, I was considering a whole bunch of them. Uh, and it was all ranging from 35, $40,000 each one to, um, uh, to around 70, 80 K. Uh, and it can, can quite comfortably afford, considerably more than that as well uh, but my wife and I are both quite naturally frugal I was thinking man it's like this these cars they look amazing everything it's like why do you care what the car looks like like literally all that matters like the vast majority of time that you're sitting that you're using the car is when you're sitting inside of it uh, sometimes you walk into the garage and you'll see it and go oh yeah that's a really nice car that's my car but that's very rare you get really used to that really quickly yeah. so as long as the appearance of it doesn't frustrate you then uh, otherwise you're just you're getting it so you can drive down the street other people can't see you because you've got the max tint and they don't know who you are they're just seeing the car and they're thinking wow whoever drives that car has got a really nice car and there are plenty of other people who are going to do that 
save your money, Harry. Just go with whatever you're comfortable with as yeah. opposed to what's going to impress yeah. you. Yeah, and also I think, um, so I've, I've, I move around, I vacillate on this one um, to a degree uh, because I have been quite materialistic at, at phases of my life. I mentioned multiple European sports cars, which is just crazy. And I do, I do have one now, but just one. Um, and so uh, that's, I, I care, like I, I really love European sports cars and I drive on the track and I do Targa and so I do a tarmac rally and that sort of stuff. And so um, it's not just about looking good. Although to be fair, I could achieve the same <laughs> result with a $35,000, um, you know, souped up kind of, you know, Japanese kind of vehicle as I do with a much, much more expensive European sports car. Uh, but um, that's something that I have chosen to go. I'm consciously making a decision to have money sitting in this depreciating asset that cost me money to keep on the road uh, because I I love it. Right? So that, that's the decision that I've made. Um, other people might go, a boat. Um, I'm, I'm not a boat, um, plane, whatever guy. I don't know that sort of, I'm not a private plane. No interest in that sort of thing anyway. Um, so um, uh, if there's something which is sufficiently, it brings you sufficient joy, then that's okay. To have that thing um, for a lot of people it's travel and experiences um, for some people it might be art um, for some people it could be jewelry um, you know that sort of thing um, i think the important thing is to understand to be very very conscious about making that decision of the thing that you're going to put your hard-earned hard invested money into uh, and maybe have one thing don't have multiple different things because that's when you start to fall into the money pit trap and then um, who owns your assets do you own them or do they own you yeah, good point. There are plenty of people who are listening to this. Oh, I, I hope there aren't too many, but knowing, knowing the, the distribution curve, I, I'm not sure what the bias is, what type of people will be listening, but knowing the distribution curve, there'll be a lot of people who will be thinking about, oh, yeah, well, hang on, wait, wait a second. I've got a nice watch. I want a nice watch. I also have a nice car. All right, one nice car, um, a nice handbag, a nice house. And all of a sudden, you add all of those things together and you've just got a very expensive lifestyle, right? You do. Um, a good friend of mine um, who is is smart, high income earner, and um, has made some pretty good long term investment decisions. He was um, showing me a, um, he, and he knows um, what I've kind of focused my effort and in, investments on over the last few years. And about eighteen months ago, he was um, uh, I was around at his place, and he was showing me, "Oh, I'm thinking about buying this batch." And I said, "Oh, batch, as well as the boat, as well as the big home that you've got here." I'm like, "That's an interesting decision." <laughs> Um, and I just, I just left it at that. I was, I tried not to be judgmental about it, but I said, it's an interesting decision. Is now the right time? Um, and then about three months later, I saw him and I said, um, oh, did you get the, did you get the batch? And he could very easily service it with um, household income. And um, he said, um, no, much to my family's chagrin, I decided that we need to be a little bit more like you for the next five years to make sure that in the 25 years, we can live the lifestyle that we actually want to live at that point in time as well. I, I like that. Yeah. That's cool. So you're already inspiring people either way. So, um, mm. so you've, you've mentioned, so we're, we're talking now ultimately about the lessons that you want people to mm. learn from this. You've, you've shared quite a few throughout this conversation. Um, you've especially shared, don't like, Make sure you've got a plan, yep. otherwise you're always going to fail. Yep. Make sure you understand your mindset, yep. which is mainly your emotions, mm -hmm. right? Regret, you've got to understand your time, you've got to understand how much greed there is. Yep. Know your own values with investing. Yep. For you, I think you shared it was contribution uh, or serving, mm -hmm. I think you replaced it with. Yep. Uh, and then curiosity, and I think you also mentioned, well, we, we spoke about it, I don't know if you mentioned it right there, but integrity as well yep. was a really big part of it. And you've made a whole bunch of bad decisions. 
mentors have helped you along the way and some of them like um mr Payne, i forgot his first name uh but he uh yeah, yeah bill Payne. but you would you ignored his advice. Get out. Get out. <laughs> you're like, no, screw it. I'm, I'm enjoying maybe it. Pause. I'm like maybe it. pause and think, why am I doing this? And I could rationalize it enough at that point in time and I continue to do so. Okay, good. And then you shared this message of richness, like how rich you are versus how wealthy you mm -hmm. are. So get wealthy slow. Yep. Uh, in fact, if you're not so worried about getting rich, then you're going to get wealthier faster. Mm -hmm. um, and then part of that was saying just be conscious and intentional about every big decision that you make. Yep. And just know the impact of every financial decision, both on yourself and on those who are around you. What else do you want to share? Well, it's, it's, um, it's remarkable when you do a recap like that of what we've uh, the ground that we've covered. Thank you. Um, so um, probably the single other thing, which is probably the most powerful thing, and we've only really lightly touched on it, is um, this quote was attributed to Einstein. I have no idea whether it was him or not but um, compounding interest should be called the eighth wonder of the world. And so compounding interest is a, um, a, has three uh, variables. What was the initial investment? Um, oh, the, the second bit of that is how much are you prepared to put in uh, per annum? Um, so what's your contribution? Uh, what's the interest rate? And then what's the time horizon? What's the time horizon? And it is remarkable the difference that time makes to any investment that will naturally go up over, over time. And so by that, I mean things like um, some form of property is a, is a natural um, increase. It has been historically, I'm not necessarily sure if it's going to continue on the same basis. Typically in New Zealand, it was a double every seven years um, as, a, as a good example for resi and commercial was about double every 10 years, give or take. Um, but in the stock market, um, it's about a blended yield of about 7.2%, I think, per year, which means that it's about, if I get these numbers right, about 10 or 11 years for your money to double. Uh, and so what that means is that you've got to have patience and you've got to have consistency in the market and you've not got to freak out when an event happens. Don't try and pick the top. Don't try and pick the bottom. I, as I've mentioned, have spent time being a trader. I'm not a trader. I just know that about myself now, having done it, that I am not a trader. I'm a buy and hold. And if I have something which is um, strategically changing my, changing my portfolio, which I'm looking at selling a, a reasonably high value commercial property at the moment, because um, I think that asset has tapped out its likely increase in value over the 10 years that I've owned it. And so I think it might be time to exit and I can deploy that capital elsewhere to better effect. But I'm not trading these things. So that's the uh, that'll be the second property that I've sold across a portfolio of, um, you know, into the double figures. So um, point that I'm being, point that I'm making here, the last and the key, the key lesson here, power of compounding interest. I've mentioned um, a book, I mentioned, I'm going to mention the third book. I didn't intend to mention Warren Buffett, Snowball, um, but then the psychology of money. And I've, I've read um, Tony Robbins' book on money, uh, which is a pretty, pretty great book. Um, Ultimately, he comes down to a very similar thing that Morgan Hounsell does with the psychology of money, which is that for most people, you're best to put your money into some form of ETF, a low cost, a low fund ETF that tracks a couple of three different indexes, indices that you think of are important ones, um, and then just keep on putting money in and just leave it there, you know. Um, and so that's what I do with a portion of my money. Uh, but then there's other things, you know, you can, you can leverage things in, in other ways if you've got that interest. So those are the mm -hmm. couple of other things that I'd add to this conversation. Great. Yeah, I mean, Warren Buffett 
uh, he his instructed his estate to invest it entirely in ETFs once it's no longer there. All right, I didn't know that, and there you go. Yeah, if that's what he says, then sure. Entirely S and P five hundred, just invest it there, and that's it. Make no strategic or tactical decisions whatsoever. Yeah. Although the way he's invested has been the complete opposite. Right? Yes. Yeah, but there's you know um, there's not many Warren, Warren Buffetts around, obviously. So. No, oh, fortunately, there aren't too many. Mm. Otherwise, otherwise, you and I would be in trouble. We could well be. Um, yeah. Or we could have given them our money. Yeah. I actually have some money sitting in Berkshire Hathaway. So that's one of the <laughs> four stocks that I own individually myself. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Any any final words you want to share with others before we stop recording? Other than it's been a great conversation. Um, probably, um, I think we touched on it. I've talked about it a bit. Really, really get your head around this mindset thing. Uh, and mm -hmm. you know, make decisions acknowledging whatever that mindset will be clouding or positively impacting you at the time and really, really be aware of greed. Uh, greed is such a dangerous, insidious thing when it comes to any form of investment, but it will, more often than not in my experience, drive bad, dis uh, bad investment decisions rather than good ones. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate Great, you Harry. coming back for a second time. Love your work. So I hope you received a whole lot of value from engaging in that conversation. What were the key takeaways for you? What can you schedule in your life right now to make sure that the time you just invested into listening to this exceptional conversation with this amazing mentor and this amazing individual is time that wasn't misused, but was time that you've allocated properly to enhancing your life and improving it. Whatever it is, schedule it now, practice it now, be the successful person you're meant to be, live with purpose.